Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Ed Larson. Dr. Larson is a university professor of history and holds the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law at Pepperdine University. He is also a senior fellow of the University of Georgia's Institute of Higher Education and a visiting professor at Stanford Law. In 1998, he received the Pulitzer Prize for History for his book, Summer for the Gods, The Scopes Trial and America's Continuing Debate Over Science and Religion. Today, you'll hear about Dr. Larson's interest in writing about early American history and the two books he has written about Washington. And now, Drs. Larson and Bradburn. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn at the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Here we are with one of my favorite people in the world, Ed Larson. Ed, welcome. Thank you. Gr wonderful to be back again. So Ed spent a long time, six months here as one of our inaugural fellows at the library. It just seemed like six months to you. It was actually three. Was it really? <laughs> was it really three <laughs> but months? But it was a little off and on. It had a, it, well, that, that was the early phases of the library right. being open, and I think for me, time stood still. It was, uh, it was an intense period. It was. And you were here, and Jim Kirby right. Martin, and you guys were just such a great presence around the building. I had the amazing uh, feat or, or opportunity to be the very first, because I got here yeah. first. And so I was the first one to stay in the new house, and I was the first one, DeVos House, and I was the, the first one to show up as a library fellow, and James came in the next day, and uh, we had a wonderful time. He's, yeah. a, he's a delight, too. The thing that Ed is being very polite about and won't mention is that, the, you know, with a new building and with <laughs> a new housing situation, there were lots of uh, bugs and wrinkles to be ironed out, and he was incredibly generous throughout with his patience. I think there's a story about a, uh, the washing machine that, was uh, wasn't attached to the wall and would hop around the room or something like that. It was a uh, it, it did have bugs, but it's it's a beautiful house, and any of you lucky enough to have an opportunity to stay there and do research here, mm. uh, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. It keeps getting better and better and better, and thanks to you and your leadership of this place, it's uh, it's awesome. Well, that's very kind. All right, so you were here working on and finishing up a book called The Return of George Washington. It was a fantastic study, which we'll talk about in a moment. I want to take a step back and look at some of your earlier life. First off, I, I always like to ask, you know, why did why did you become a historian? I mean, this is a, for those of us who do it, it's great, and we love it, and you're in a great position now, but, you know, it's, it's not an easy path to decide, I'm going to get a PhD, I'm going to become a an academic. I mean, what what was the thing that drove you into this uh, uh, this road? Simply love of doing it. I mm. love history. Mm. I I've always loved history. I've read it since as early as I can remember. Mm. And also, as early as I can remember, I'm told that when people would ask me, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" and they expect you to say, "I'd be a fireman or something," yeah. I would always say, "Be a be a college professor in a college town." We lived. I grew up. Is that right? Did you? I grew up near Kenyon College in, mm. in 
Central Ohio, mm -hmm. and we used to go up to Kenyon, which is where my dad went to college, by the way. We used to go up there on Sunday and eat at the Gambier Inn. <laughs> and to me, this, who, who I like books, I like to read, I love the outdoors, and if you've ever been to Kenyon, it's a beautiful college. And this just to me looked like heaven. Mm. And it, we sort of lived in coal mining country. A lot of people, there's a lot of strip mining around. There was a lot of farming, industrial. There were big old hulking factories, all now closed now, thanks to NAFTA. But they were they were all there then working the rubber, f uh, the tire factory, the steel mill. And I saw that life, and I saw life up on the hill in Gambier, and I said, mm. "This is heaven." Yeah. And and. So that was always what I really wanted to do, and I'll tell you, after I got in it, except for grading papers and faculty meetings, it is heaven. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> well, you picked out the two the two nasty parts. There's there's no doubt about that. Yes. Yeah, so uh, you did your uh, you did your PhD work at uh, Wisconsin University of Wisconsin Madison. Absolutely. And, and you did you work with Merrill Jensen there? Well, I worked with him, and I worked with uh, Boyer. Right. A wonderful, yeah. wonderful guy. Um, took classes um, uh, with a variety of, I mean, they then had the stars. Mm. It's wonderful people in revolutionary yeah. period, wonderful people in legal history. Uh, they, they were really strong. Um, but I also worked with um, a variety of people in the history of science, too, because I worked with both areas, and they had, they were then the finest program in the country in that as well. So it was, and of course, Madison, you talk about heaven. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin is a college town. They don't get yeah. any better than that. So I've really been blessed. Yeah, that uh, Madison is a fantastic place to, to do work. I've done some research at the historical, the State oh. Historical Society, which is right there on campus. And it's got to be the greatest state historical society in, in the country. It's an amazing dedication to history, amazing commitment from the state. Yeah. And uh, the whole Wisconsin idea, I'm sort of a La Follette progressive. You know, yeah. you have to sort of admire them yeah. and their idea of Wisconsin uh, of the Wisconsin idea which is merging scholarship history including history um, but all the other different social sciences as well uh, into governance uh, is a beautiful dream uh, why do they have so much early American stuff at that Wisconsin Historical Society I mean they've got a tremendous amount of 18th century material there obviously you know that uh, the Ratification Papers project has been there under John Kaminsky's work, uh, guidance for so long now. But they, they just said, where did that come from? How did they amass that? Well, it's a combination of People factors. People moving west brought it with them, or what? Well, part of it that, <laughs> but it, it was an early commitment to history, yeah. uh, a, a commitment going back. It's sort of the difference why there are historically tremendous resources at, at Jefferson's home. Mm. Because you had the um, you had the the moneyed out there early to buy things when they were cheap in the late 1800s, mm -hmm. and uh, so they were buying those sorts of things when Mount Vernon wasn't. And Mount Vernon's gotten into the game now, and of course is doing even a better job uh, than they are at Jefferson's home. But back then, they've got some early resources in, in documents. Mm -hmm. They could buy up the Jefferson things early, and the same thing was happening at um, Madison. They had the money early. They had people committed to history mm. for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah. They had the state money. And so they were pouring money in when these documents could be bought. Yeah. Then they also built an early, really strong history department. Basically, they were one of the first to buy into this German ideal. Mm. Um, you think of all the, you, the idea that they brought history over here, the way they do history, the idea of building block history. Yeah. And um, uh, Johns Hopkins got into it early. But Wisconsin, and they had the resources. Now, if you look at historical societies, 
the truth is, Wisconsin isn't buying that much. They don't have the resources. Yeah. Minnesota is the one that's really, really doing an amazing job. Their new facility is beautiful. They're being a, they have money, but now all these documents are really expensive right, because exactly. you're <laughs> and was and so Wisconsin bought them early and they stayed with them. So it's a it's a it's an well as as we in the profession believe everything is an artifice of history. So is that. Yeah, well that's a that's very helpful. Thank you. So Ed knows it all as you see here. Now he he started cut his teeth in history of science and, and legal history, and uh, is perhaps certainly was perhaps better known. Uh, for his work on the Scopes Monkey Trial before he decided to get into early American history. Talk a little bit about the Scopes Trial and your, your Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's called Summer for the Gods and it came out in 1997 and I had uh, already brought out one, several books but one of the books I brought out was on the history of the creation evolution battles in the United States. Mm -hmm. And those combine both history of science, political history, they were very politically uh, uh, connected, and um, quite a bit of state archival research. Mm -hmm. When I was at Madison, I was also um, trying to think of my exact title, analyst for the uh, Wisconsin State That's uh, right. yeah, Senate at the same time. You worked in so politics. I, I, I was involved in the in the in working in government, part of the Wisconsin idea, I suppose, as well as getting my PhD. So that interchange I was comfortable with, mm -hmm. and um, so uh, I went on and wrote other books and other activities. And then, of all things, the the um, the O.J. Simpson trial comes on, and everybody gets fascinated with that. And they needed a lot of filler. Uh, on the various <laughs> networks when they were following. They and certainly did. That was on 24-7. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And one of the fillers they often did was other trials of the century. Okay. And so they'd often yeah. be talking about the Scopes trial. And one time, one of my colleagues mm. at um, University of Georgia, I was then a, a professor at University of Georgia, uh, a legal historian. Uh, I never taught legal history because we had Peter Hoffer there, who's a rel relative, a well-known legal historian, wonderful guy, but possessive of his craft. <laughs> and so I was off teaching American history, political history, uh, history of science. And he came up to me in the halls one time and he says, I have the perfect book for you. And I said, what's that? He says, you should write a book on the Scopes trial. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the minute he said it, it made sense. And I asked him why, but I already had why spinning around in my head. Um, as both of us knew, he's a, r he's a true expert. He is a true expert. Peter is a true expert on legal history. He, he has his own series on legal history with the University of, I think, Kansas Press. And at that time, no historian had ever written up the Scopes trial. It's, it's one of Is those that right? things. It's shocking. There had only been journalists. Well, there's the movie. I mean, everybody the movie knows Inherit the Wind. Well, that's hardly historically I accurate. I guess that was a play first. That was a yeah. play really yeah. about the McCarthy trial. Yeah. And it's like, um, that's it's quite like a bit crucible. like the Crucible. <laughs> right. right, Arthur Miller's play. Yeah. He uses a past historical event to attack McCarthy in a safe way. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it changes the story enormously. Mm -hmm. And that's what I documented in the book. And the, the writers of that play, Jerry Lawrence and Bob Lee, were still alive. I interviewed them. They ended up loving the book because they said, that's what our play was never about. And um, <laughs> The reality. The, the reality. <laughs> and there were journalists. It's um, such a great movie, though. It's, it's a wonderful it really movie. It's, but it's a movie about... Scott. 
a movie about tolerance. Yes. And the play had nothing, the real event had nothing to do with tolerance because <laughs> neither side, um, it's hard to imagine two less tolerant people in American history than Clarence Darrow, William Jennings Bryan, and they're both my heroes. They're both heroes. They weren't heroes before, but when I studied more of them, I grew to admire them greatly, but they were tolerant. One yeah. of the great things about them is they were both fanatics. Yeah. And like <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia or something, or like Patrick Henry, or like, or like, um, uh, in, uh, any other, m so many other great men. Mm. But tolerance was not a virtue yeah. in their book. And <laughs> so, um, since no historian had done it, um, and Peter knew that, and I knew that, and it only, uh, some journalists had written some great books, Six mm. Days or Forever, um, but that's by a journalist. Um, only Yesterday, but that's a journalist. A great, great book, best, second best-selling book of the mm. 1930s. Um, you have various books like that. Even a, even a science fiction writer wrote a book about it. I think The Great Monkey Trial was the name of that one. <laughs> but it was, um, but no historian had ever gone back and looked over the archives. Yeah. There were a lot of new archives available I'd known. Well, that's that's a point uh, to jump in here. So you keep you, you keep saying, well, a journalist had written it, but not a historian. So what is what does a historian's sensibilities bring to a project that a journalist won't won't always uh, bring to it? Well, journalists can be great storytellers. Often they, but they look for sources, typically like a journalist looks for sources. Mm. So they'll often read secondary accounts mm. and then give their own spin to them. Mm. So they can synthesize secondary, it's like interviewing um, people who know something about it. They also s often look to newspapers, uh, Six Days or Forever, which was Ray Ginger's book on the Scopes trial, when I actually worked closely with it and redid it and looked back at the journalistic accounts, I found out that he lifted page after page right from the newspapers yeah. and just plopped them in. Yeah. Um, so hmm. you're, you're, you, it's how to balance archival research, how to look for archival research, which often is, um, is indirectly important, how to go through and get letters, how to find letters, how to look at, look for survivors, if there were, there were still some back there, mm. and interview them. How to go back and read the, you have the transcript, read the transcript and work with the transcript, work with the law, but also how to connect up things with a historical perspective. And journalists yeah. just typically just don't have that skill and that ability. And, and Ray Ginger, for example, was a very good um, journalist and wrote a gripping story, mm. uh, but the story was filled with your classic journalistic flaws. He would take everything written in the newspaper as true, mm. um, and everything written in the newspaper isn't necessary. It's like thinking every today, like thinking everything on the internet's true. Yeah, it'd be like writing a, a book about the Times, reading only the cable news channel transcripts or something like that. And what yeah. a historian has to do is what I at least do as a historian try to do is I try to, I'm aware there's subjectivity creeps into everything, but what I try to do is get as many different insights on an event and see how they're seeing it, because everything see, everybody sees everything through their own eyes. Mm. And then by taking as many different insights, so for example, I, there's, there's an enormous amount available that, that Ray Ginger didn't even look at uh, of the Darrow Papers. And so everything Darrow wrote to his friends, um, to to the ACLU who was orchestrating the trial, um, said in the newspaper, 
But then there was also other people on the on the, the defense, such as Arthur Garfield Hayes and Dudley Field Malone, who were great lawyers, famous people at the time, mm. get what they saw. Okay, then you get that. Then you get what Brian saw. Then you get how the other prosecutors, like uh, Tom Stewart, who then became a senator, very bright person, his records are available, uh, some of the other prosecution forces. Mm. Then you get other, then you get, a, you had the finest journalists in America were there, two, over 200 journalists, you name them, mm. the best people were mm. there. Get all their accounts. If you get enough different perspectives, each of their, their own subjective pr perspective, and you look through all those and you try to, you try to distill out of them what you see as the common focus. Yeah, what was the story? What do they all see? Now, mm -hmm. a journalist isn't looking for that. A journalist is looking for a story yeah. that grips the reader. And so he may flip from, oh, this is a great story. This is a great story. And pick out each great story from a different person and then string together a bunch of great stories. Yeah. But they're not trying to recreate what happened. Right. They're trying to create they're taking a variety of different perspectives and it's true as long as one person said it. Mm. That's, uh, and since one person said it, one person saw it, you can put in that story. Well, that's fun story to read, but it might not be true. Mm. It might be how it, either, either that person might have made it up altogether, which, for example, a good example of that would be there was a commonly discussed story then that H.L. Mencken, the great journalist who was following this for the Baltimore Sun, was was literally driven out of town mm. by hostile crowds. So that story goes in, it's, it's a wonderful story, and it was elaborated in some of the accounts, it became quite elaborate. Literally the tars and feathers were ready, <laughs> literally he was warned at the last minute, literally all these things, those appeared in newspapers. Yeah. They're simply not true. Yeah. He was not driven out of town at all. <laughs> he thought the trial was over mm. on Friday, when the prosecution, when the prosecution stopped the defense from bringing in the expert witnesses, he thought it was all over. He left town. Well, you have all the discussion. You have Darrow's last meeting with him. You have his own account. It's clear he left town. That was before the alleged threat that drove him out of town. There was no threat. He was actually fairly well received in town because they thought people thought he was amusing and interesting, even though he was sort of critical. That means he meant missed the most famous event in the history of American law <laughs> when Darrow calls Brian to the stand yeah. and makes that famous inquisition. That happens on Monday. Darrow had been planning it for weeks. Mm -hmm. He had been preparing it with people standing in as Brian. He knew he was going to do it. It was all prepped and prepared, but he couldn't tell anyone, not even H.L. Mencken, who was his friend, what was coming because he couldn't spill the beans because if he knew that Brian heard about it in advance, Brian would realize this is a disaster. Yeah. I'm w walking into a trap. But if he springs it on Brian, in the right sense, he thinks Brian can, he can get Brian to agree. So when you add all these, there's no way that the that, that H.L. Mencken would have left, left Dayton if he yeah. knew what was coming. Yeah. But also he wasn't threatened. So there you get a great story that that goes in there and goes in those books is true yeah. when uh, no his, no historian would let it get through the sieve yeah. no his, no credible historian you would lose your credibility of a historian if that sort of story as good as it is made it into your book 
that would be an example of a difference between a journalist. Now, it doesn't mean you don't love reading the journalist story, but you brought that up just a second ago. You love watching Inherit the Wind. I love it, watching Inherit the Wind. Uh, and um, whether it's with Paul Mooney on Mooney on Broadway or Spencer Tracy in, <laughs> on the, uh, in the movie, it is absolutely incredible. But it's not an account of what actually happened. And while America needs its folklore, we need our myths. They're very important to us. They teach us, in that case, about tolerance, about getting along with each other, and yeah. heaven only knows we need that. Um, we also need our history, yeah. because they help us see how to go forward, how we can live with what really happens. Yeah. Well, that's a really nicely put uh, uh, point. And it, we're in a moment now, like in America, of course, where we have... Uh, we have some historical fiction that's doing incredibly well around the founding era. The Hamilton musical, of course, is, mm -hmm. is blowing things up. And, 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 and people seem to uh, have a difficult time sort of figuring out, well, is this history or is this not history? Is this true? And how, if it isn't true, then what do we do about it? And what does it say about modern race relations? And what does it say about race relations in the 18th century? And what does it tell us about these people? And what does it tell us about ourselves? And... And that's a, I think that's that's the that's the great thing about a great work of art is the conversations that it can that it can create. But it isn't a substitute for the history of the era. Uh, hopefully, it's a springboard to doing yeah. more history and more I interest in right. the history, because y you give a great example there. The Hamilton stance on slavery yeah. is much more nuanced and complex. Marrying into a, a family where there was a history of slavery. Certainly his legal practice profited from uh, slave owners. He had a very complex, he was against it, but you know, he wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the sacrificial way that Ben Franklin became in the end, yeah. uh, writing all those petitions. Where, and then Jefferson is too easily, that's a complex relationship with slavery too, because his whole relationship with Sally Hemings is a complex relationship that can't be easily put in a simple soundbite, and yet people do put both into a yeah. soundbite. Yeah. Well, so let's talk. Uh, let's talk about that era then, as we move your own career in terms of your writing back to uh, the founding era. You you wrote a book on the election of eighteen hundred, which is an incredible book. Uh, why did you decide that to move out of the twentieth century, the late nineteenth century, and and move into the late eighteenth century? And, uh, you see this, of course. You see this with popular historians all the time, and those journalists that you were just decrying uh, and celebrating, but decrying as well. But um, but it's it's less. You see it less in certainly amongst people in academic departments. Partly, I think, because of that the jealousy of their colleagues <laughs> over their own period, and so to be, to have the kind of. Um, you know, have the, the will to go in and learn a whole new historiography, learn the sources. I mean, what drew you back to that, to try to understand that question? In a way, it was the, the Scopes Trial book that did it. Now, if you do look at most of my books, they are basically in the early part of the 20th century. They run from about 1890 to uh, 19... 30. The progressive era. The progressive and era. And a little bit of whatever And the comes reaction out. to yeah. the progressive yeah. era. Also the reactionism. Yeah. The whole the whole tensions there. Mm. So you have the book on eugenics and your book on the Scopes trial and you have the focus of the of the trial and error book 
but you also have uh, the Antarctic Exploration Book mm -hmm. and the one I'm working on now are all focused in that period, um, Anglo-American um, interchange during that period and, and, and some in Europe. My evolution book is centered in that period. So I do have that. What drew me back is, of course, um, partly I had a foundation in that because, as you say, I yeah. did do, I have a law degree. I have uh, always done legal history, um, always done constitutional work. Mm -hmm. So I, always, I had a book on that I had developed because I was for use in the, my classroom. I did an edited edition of Madison's Notes to the Constitution, right, of course, yeah. and I had edited that down to use in class because that's a tremendous resource, but nobody can read the Faran, the full account, because yeah. it's just chaos. Yeah. And so I just first was using it in class for years, and the students liked it, and other people heard about it, and I used to mimeograph and give it to other people. And then I found out one of my colleagues, a great early American historian, Michael Winship, who's an expert on the Puritans, yeah. had done exactly the same thing, so we looked mm -hmm. at ours together, and they were pretty similar. We merged together, and then, of all people, Random House brought it out as a modern library book, which means it sells. Mm. And it sort of has become one of the, 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 the popular reference works on how you can actually read the Madison's notes. So I had that book, and so I knew the convention from having brought that out. I taught, was teaching early American history because we had more of a need for that than we had. We were at Georgia, where I was taught and was head of the history department. We were overloaded with modernists, and so mm. I was teaching the first half, so I was teaching that. Then, after the Scopes book came out, uh, after a few years, I was contacted by an editor at Free Press and said, well, can you write another book like the Scopes trial? Mm. And I said, well, I'm sure I could write another book <laughs> by the Scopes trial, <laughs> but what do you mean? Mm. Which would be a good historian's question. When yeah. you say you want me to write a book like like the Scopes yeah, trial. What do you have to write? What do you mean by a book <laughs> like the Scopes trial? Because I might mean one thing, you that's, might mean another. That's true. Yeah. And they said, yeah. well, what I loved about the book is you took one simple little episode in American history and unpacked, a, which was a week long, and unpacked a whole era through that one little event. Yeah. And so you go into one tiny little event and you keep following every tentacle out. And I said, okay, I see that but another one where it's science versus religion in America. Mm. And I said, is there any other event that pits science and religion in America than the Scopes trial? He says, oh, there are a whole bunch of them. And I, and I said, I once, for fun, taught a course at Georgia after I'd done that book. I taught a couple of years a seminar on episodes in science no, and history in America. And I said, yeah. I'll send you my syllabus. Yeah. And she looked over the syllabus, and the one that caught her attention was the election of 1800, really? because that was a battle. It was viewed by many as a battle between science and religion, with John Adams uh, being the course, candidate yeah, of religion, of course, yeah. and the Jefferson deist, being yeah, the presented as the scientist. Deist, yeah. Science, and also a scientist. scientist yeah. um, it's, not, it's, not, it's faux battle in the sense that actually by 1800, Madison's and Jefferson's views on religion were very similar. They would both be categorized then as Unitarians. Yeah. Jefferson was no longer a deist because Priestley had drawn him away from deism toward Unitarianism, mm. and Adams had moved away from his early faith, and he was a yeah. Unitarian. He but followed the path of more typical of these uh, Congregationalists, former Puritans, towards, uh, towards Unitarian. Unitarian, which yeah. was, sure, like leading yeah. to Emerson eventually. <coughs> yeah. uh, so he, they were, here you had, but it, it was viewed, it was presented, and a uh, boy did I find and have the pamphlets and newspaper articles 
that really did pit it as a battle. And yeah, so that's great. Yeah. That's so they picked up on that. So I ended up writing a book on the election of 1800, which included that, but was a lot broader. That book sold well and was very popular and was viewed as, oh, we've never seen. We have books about the election of 1800, like Cunningham's wonderful book, but it's really mostly about the partisan divide during the yeah. 1790s, and then the last chapter is the yeah, 1811. Right. Yeah. And I did the reverse. My model was Theodore White's uh, Making of a President, 1960. Mm. And in fact, what I did was I actually followed his model exactly. Mm. He, every chapter is two months. So in my book, every mm. chapter is two months. And I'm forced to, forced to fill out a whole chapter in mm. those two months, but I'm also limited to that. And then really I look out B look yeah. back to the 1790s mm. and look forward and look around from those what was happening in those two months. So I wrote that book, it did well, and then that led me back further yeah. to where did that come from? And the return of George Washington, I was able to very closely follow the election of 1788 because really nobody had written about that yeah. as a competitive election. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. So <coughs> so you've moved back into the early American period with this really nice science and religion continuity, but in a different way. Um, my, I think you told me an anecdote, maybe this isn't true, but we'll, we'll say it anyway, uh, and then you can correct me, but it, is, it not, is it true that um, Karl Rove was known to be reading your book on the election of 1800 and saying that this is... This is a this is politics. This is how it is. Is that true? Car the <coughs> there's a series that the Wall Street Journal has. I think it comes out on the weekend edition mm. where they ask someone with a read an expert. Mm. Well, and ask him to name the five greatest books of all time mm. on a particular subject. Mm. I'd been in that once before. They once asked Alan Dershowitz to list the five greatest books ever written about a trial. And Alan Dershowitz was the famous professor at Harvard. Yeah. And out of the blue, you know, it came out. And mine was listed number two of all time, a book about, this is Summer for the Gods, mm. about a trial. But I couldn't complain because number one was Frank Kafka's The Trial. Wow. And I said, well, I don't mind being number two to that one. That's well, Carl Rove was asked to do the same thing about the best five books That's ever right. written in history about a presidential election. And lo and behold, I was number two again, mm -hmm. but behind Teddy White's yeah. Making of a President in 1960, <laughs> which I go. couldn't complain about since it was my model. <laughs> um, but Carl Rove then gave it to, um, Carl Rove was then working in the White House for President George W. Bush. And George Bush was all, Carl Rove was an avid reader and um, had read the book. And then he gave it to George, President Bush, when he was still president, it was in his, um, in the year before, it was, it was in his penultimate year, the year before his last year. And, um, and he was reading it, and then it came to the, um, every year at the end of the year, the Washington Post has sort of a, of a conversation with the president, whoever the president is, and ask him a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And they know he was a reader, so one of the questions they ask in, in that book, in that interview, was, um, was what, are you, what, what are you reading now? And he says, oh, I'm reading Edward Larson's um, uh, Magnificent Catastrophe. It's an absolutely fabulous book. It's about the election of 1800. And then shortly after that, I got a note, handwritten, 
by, from President Bush, who I didn't know, of course, and it was a it was an amazing note. It's on his note paper, and it's written in a yeah. in a felt tip pen. They always write. Yeah, he uses these like sharpies kind right. of things. Yeah, I was just at the Bush Library uh, two weeks ago. Otherwise, I wouldn't know that. Yeah, so here he goes, and it writes, "Dear Professor Larson," or something, and he starts writing on this notepad, saying, "I'm just finished your book on the uh, election day keynote. It's an absolutely wonderful book." And, and he says, "Wonderful things. I still have it." But then he keeps. Then he starts getting into the book. Mm. And the lines start getting narrow, tighter and tighter because he's only got so much yeah. room. Yeah. And he starts writing real small. Yeah. And he says, I really love the part about Jefferson. I love the way he loved his daughters. I could see, you know, elections are tough. I had a tough first, because, of course, it ends yeah. the, the real story. Tie, Jefferson yeah. Adams is a tie. And it went to the house. He says, I had a final election. But, uh, you know, and he starts getting into things. And he runs out of room at the bottom. Kept going, and so finally he starts writing up the side of the page. Oh. You know how you turn the corner <laughs> and you start writing up? That's he great. just leaves a little corner to write sincerely Bush. And I got this poor letter. <laughs> and I loved it. And I lo got to meet him later. And he was a wonderful guy. But I got this letter, I'll have to admit. I looked at it and I said, and I saw this going <laughs> up the edge, and I said, just like the Iraq War, no exit strategy. Oh, wow, Ed, that's <laughs> tough. Wow, that's, uh, that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good story. That's really amazing. Um, now, I was, at, I was at the Bush Library two, well, two weeks ago or so, maybe, maybe more, and, uh, and they've got some really great exhibits there. They've really done a remarkable job in, that, uh, in the institution. You come in to this foyer. Have you ever, have you ever been in there? No, Carl Rove, by the way, when I last saw him, Invited me down and says I'm going to get an invitation, but mm. I haven't seen it yet. Well, they're busy right now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Election cycle. Well, this will be a good one to do two, two month by two month, but you might people might have to do a two week by two week uh, chapters on this election. It's been it's been uh, crazy. Anyway, in the Bush Library, the uh, the the foyer has got this. I guess they're LCD screens or uh, LED screens. Sorry, around the whole kind of square. And they have these moving pictures, and it, when you first come in, it looks like it's just stone, and then you realize it's actually a screen. It's really remarkable technology. Well, we have some amazing presidential libraries, yeah. thanks to these last, t thanks to these two books. I've been able to be invited to many of them to mm. speak. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm going to the Truman Library this summer. You got to get your passport stamped. Well, I'll t you know the one that I I went for last President's Day. They had me out at the Nixon Library, yeah. and that's real. They do it a nice job. Yeah. It's it's one of the more honest of the presidential libraries, mm. and it was quite uh, it was it's smaller, mm. but you get a you get quite a feel for Nixon in that. So they're they're it's all interesting. Pretty megalithic these libraries. Right? Yeah, and that one isn't. Yeah. That one isn't, and he's got his birthplace there. It's got his little home. Mm. Uh, it's a really a touching thing, and it's not quite as monumental. So I actually I did like the Nixon Library. Nobody hardly ever goes to it. It's off in a in a part of LA that people don't head off to. Mm. They don't flock there like the <coughs> the Reagan Library and the, there's one. The Reagan Library is one that's you talk about monumental. Mm. I, I haven't seen I haven't seen it in Simi Valley. Yeah. It's it's monumental. It's a it's a work of the first lady and it is a they've got one of those planes in there, right? They they've got, got the plane. Air Force One. They've also it's a pantheon to, to, to Reagan. It's a yeah. it's it's a beautiful place. But you know I, I I've been to the 
Hoover, uh, Hoover one and West, that's, that's touching in Iowa. Mm -hmm. These small little ones that really capture the person, I, I, I do have a certain affection for them. The Eisenhower one in yeah. Abilene, Kansas. I think the small presidential libraries are a thing of the past. <laughs> no, that, <laughs> I that, can't imagine that, that, that Obama's going to have a, a, a small, a little humble uh, library. No, after they leave presidency, it seems they like to raise, they, they're so good at raising funds yeah. for their campaign. Um, uh, Clinton was so, then he turned around and raised money for his monumental library. Can yeah. you imagine what the Trump presidential library <laughs> would look like? Well, it'll be gold, I know that. <laughs> All right, so let's get It'll back. It'll be awesome. It'll be really awesome. Let's get back to the man who made America great the first time, and that's uh, George Washington. Uh, so you you uh, you decided to do a book on Washington. Was this something where your agent said, "Well, you're doing the early stuff now," or your editor said, "How about uh, something else in the early period?" How did you how did you decide to do the the book you wrote, the great book you wrote, The Return of George Washington? It was, again, looking for something that hasn't been done. Mm -hmm. And I know that yeah. sounds crazy, talking about Washington. Nobody, no Americans ever had more books written about them than Washington. But I don't know if that's true. I and mean, that might be true. Maybe Lincoln, maybe. And Jefferson gets a ton of books on him, too. But at any rate, you're probably well, right in terms of numbers of books. Where Washington. Washington goes ahead, I believe, and I, I tr um, somebody once did a study of this, and I read it, and I don't remember who it was. Well, Washington goes ahead is he had all those books written during the 1800s about him. Oh. And Jefferson mm. wasn't that. That's People true. didn't write. Yeah. That's now, yeah, yeah. now there's probably more coming out on Jefferson or Franklin even. Yeah. Um, he wasn't president, but you got a lot of books on Franklin now uh, but and less on Washington. But what it was was I had taught, as I mentioned, the first half of American history. Yeah. Uh, year after year after year at Georgia, I'd go before a sea of faces at 8 o'clock in the morning. I did that at Binghamton. I love teaching the I big survey it. course. There's nothing more fun than putting it in that big context. You have a long narrative that you're telling. I think and it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I loved it, and I'd always do it first period. Hmm. And I didn't do that. I just, <laughs> it, was, it was a great experience. And um, when, you, when you follow the standard narrative, hmm. when you're telling the first half of American history, you have a couple days, three days maybe, we, we were on the, the we, we met every day a week there um, on the American Revolution. And it's all about Washington. Washington, Washington here, there's the Battle of Long Island, there's the Battle of uh, 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 Yorktown, or the Siege of Yorktown, uh, there's, there's all these things. And then you have a day where you have to describe the collapse of the Union, where everything's mm -hmm. going to hell in a handbasket, where you have Shays' Rebellion, where you have the states pulling apart, where you have the problems in Vermont, where you have um, the Rhode Island, you have the collapse. And then you get to the first presidential administration, it's all about Washington again. Mm -hmm. Washington disappears during mm -hmm. that, that day. And I w it always sort of bugged me. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for what's missing in history. And I'm saying, well, if Washington really cared so much about his country, which he did, that he, 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 he sacrificed nine years of his life as a general, where he sent people to their deaths, people he loved to his death, because he was very close to at least his top aides, um, where he himself risked death, where he served for, uh, away from his plantation that he loved for nine years without pay or leave, that level of dedication, and his deep belief in Republican virtues, and his enlightenment um, belief that America truly was something new under the sun, mm -hmm. and yeah. his incredible pride in the sense that he believed he was called for something great, and he was going to make a difference and he was going to change things. Yeah. And they were all tied to the success of this republic that everybody in Europe thought could never work. We need a monarch, we need, a, we need um, this form of government, popular government can't work. Mm -hmm. And 
If he believed all those things so deeply, would he just sit out in Mount Vernon and tend his farm while everything was going to a hell in a handbasket and it looked like the states were going to collapse and they were going to be picked off one by one and they were going to rejoin the Europe and it was all going to fail. And we were becoming a laughing stock of Europe. And again, I think he was a very proud man. He was proud for his country. I couldn't believe he was doing nothing. And yet, <laughs> even if you look at the best biographies of him, Ron Chernow's wonderful one-volume biography, or the great multi-volume biographies like Flexner's, um, they basically skip this period. Or if they talk about this period, that is between when he steps down, that is sort of after Yorktown, or certainly after the recapture of New York City, and before he becomes president, they, if they talk about him at all, they talk about him as a farmer. Mm -hmm. Well, he was an important farmer. He was an innovative plantation owner. And you have to talk about it sometime. Uh, partly, you need relief from the intensity that yeah. you had and the intensity yeah. you're going to get. Yeah. So it's sort of a Well, you as a writer can understand that, that, that structure of that life, that biography. My goodness, you know, it, there's so much in it. To, to, yeah. to write a good biography that's a complete life of Washington, I think is beyond most of us. I mean, it's just, there's just way too much. And then, yeah, you get to the 1780s, and that's when you can you can write more about slavery, you can write more about Martha, you can write more about the house and, and the farms. And, and all the innovative yeah. plantation yeah. Uh, farming, the yeah. mules, the, yeah. the, um, the, the new crops brought in. Yeah. The, so, so you felt like it didn't I connect, though. It didn't I, make any sense. It didn't connect to the broader story of the, of the critical period. So what I decided to do, since I work with law and I worked with the Constitution, mm. um, and I thought from my work on the book about the Constitution that Washington was more involved, I decided mm. that I would just pour myself into what Washington was actually doing during that period. Mm. Read the letters, read what other people were writing, uh, come out here to Mount Vernon and, and, and see who was coming mm. and who was going, and then look again at all the notes of the co Constitution and try to see what yeah. Washington was actually doing during this period above and beyond his life at the plantation, yeah. which was very well documented. And what I f found, and I thought there might be a book there, I didn't know, mm -hmm. but I wanted to look at it in that way. And another clue on that was um, Pauline Mayer, who put, encouraged me to write this. She was a great historian up at um, MIT, mm -hmm. had written a book called Ratification. And she does a funny thing in that. She, she buys the traditional narrative that Washington, the Cincinnati is myth, that Washington, and that's another reason why you get this pastoral period in Washington's yeah. life, yeah. because there's this, he was trying well, to He's claiming that he's you know, floating down the stream of life under his vine and fig tree and all that. So he's, he's playing up that role. And the historians buy it. Mm -hmm. And Pauline, uh, Paulette Meyer had bought it as well, and so she wrote this work on a ratification, where she follows the ratification debates. And he says in there, says, even though he wasn't involved, the most interesting place to watch this debate, she's actually in the text, says this, remember, is yeah. from Mount Vernon, because um, you can watch it from there as a neutral observer. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. You're sitting there, she's building her narrative about letters coming in on Mount Vernon, and as a neutral observer, <laughs> as a neut you read those letters. He's pushing a cause. Yeah. He's orchestrating the whole thing. Mm. And he is, he is the, the linchpin in a nationalistic movement. Mm. Not that he is the only one. Mm. Not that he is necessarily the smartest one. Yeah. But he is the linchpin around which John Jay and, Mon and James uh, Madison and um, 
uh, Governor Morris in Pennsylvania and Robert Morris, who was active earlier, even though he gets financial trouble, so he's a little act less active later. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Knox, um, his former war secretary, who's very much involved, and the Pinckneys in South Carolina, all these people are reacting, w and Hamilton, mm -hmm. with and through Washington, and he's sort of like the spoke, uh, the, 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 the center, mm -hmm. and all these spokes are interacting too because yeah. they know he's critical. And so it's not that it's a neutral place to watch the whole thing, it's Grand Central Station. It's the place to it's watch the, the Federalist movement. The whole in Federalist action. movement in action. Yeah. And so therefore I I sort of flip what she's doing. And I was working with, she ended up uh, dying shortly before the book came out and I dedicated the book to her and she deserves it. Um, but I was working closely with her and bouncing ideas off her mm. and basically we just sort of reversed that image. Mm -hmm. and. It, by focusing on that one period, I think that I could add something yeah. to a rich body of scholarship on Washington. I think it's really remarkable that you've, essentially you've discovered the elephant in the room. I mean, you know, there he was all this time, you know, doing, you know, doing the leading of this movement. I mean, it's funny because, uh, you know, you, you think of the way people write about Jefferson and his relationship to his party in the, in the 1790s. And he's doing nothing different than what Washington's doing in the 1780s in terms of being at Monticello, corresponding and following the correspondence and pushing people in these different ways and asking people to take up their pen and do this and that. And Washington is, is doing all the same stuff. I hadn't thought of that, but that is a perfect analogy because yeah. Washington, for example, Washington had literally asked Hamilton, Jay, yeah. and Madison separately yeah to write to articles write. Yeah. pushing ratification. Yeah. The result is we get the Federalist Papers. <laughs> he had asked them to yeah. do it. Yeah. They wrote it. When he got it, he said, this is the best book ever written in America <laughs> about political theory. Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. You know, and, and your, well, your book is fantastic. There's a lot of great things about it. I love one of the things that you rediscover is the significance of Washington's legacy, which is the, uh, the circular to the states that he had written when he was still Commander-in-Chief is the last official circular to the governors of the states, mm -hmm. uh, which is later goes on to be known as the legacy, much like we think of the uh, farewell address as this, you know, the, the farewell address is the farewell address. The legacy was the legacy in the 1780s. Talk a little bit about how that, how you came to understand its, its significance. Well, as I was looking at all these pieces, I began to see what a, what a popular document that was. And that's never been recognized. I mean, even our encyclopedia article argues that nobody ever read it and it wasn't important, which we're getting rewritten, but nevertheless. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it's never really been a big part of the story. By reading all the newspapers, and there you have one great advantage is the, you don't get them all, but the American Antiquarian Society yeah. has a wonderful collection of uh, newspapers that you, where you can, which is very accessible and serviceable. You have to do some of the other important ones. They don't have some of the key ones. You have to go through those one by one, but you get to see you're putting in Washington. You're finding out where he is, and you find out, for example, during that period, the the Confederation period, if you went to their typical Fourth of July celebration, and that was the big event and everything, they would typically read two documents. They would typically read the Declaration of Independence publicly and Washington Circular to the States. Mm -hmm. Those would be the two documents read publicly at these events during this period. Amazing. It was yeah. a widely followed document and it 
it proposes certain things that need to be in the central government that aren't there. Certain elements. Then you can follow Washington more closely in his letters, and he is constantly articulating, we need a central government that has complete control over interstate commerce and international commerce. In short, we need, like in Europeans, common market. We need a national market economy. It's the only way to grow the pie. So we need a central, go central government to have that. Sole control over the money supply. We can't be each state making its own money because that'll ruin property rights. We need a government that can maintain an army um, to defend the frontier, um, open the frontier for progressive settlement and new states going west. Mm -hmm. We need a central government that has common weights and measures. We need a central government that can one postal system that can connect. There were certain things that he said had to be in the central government. Um, we need one that will prevent the states from overturning contracts. They, they tended to involve property rights, they tended to involve national sovereignty, a national security, and a national market economy. These are the things we need. Now, he would art clearly articulate those at different stages. Mm -hmm. Now, Madison, who is often called the architect of the Constitution, had a very, he had some of those things on there, but he had a different vision. Mm -hmm. What's and he, his vision is sort of articulated in the Virginia plan that goes before mm -hmm. the Constitutional Convention. What's amazing when you, s and it doesn't have any real place for states. Um, uh, when you see the final document, the powers that are included after they're all done in Philadelphia, it includes the central government gains every single power that Washington had been articulating for five years mm -hmm. or needed. Yeah. And it doesn't include a lot of the other ones like Madison wanted the central government to appoint the states, just to state governors, just as the king used to appoint the governors in the yeah. various colonies. Yeah. He, wanted, he the, wanted the veto. He, he wanted, wanted the, the, the veto on state law. State law by Congress. Those are gone, yeah. but those were never in Washington's vision. Yeah. The Constitution that comes out is much closer to Washington's vision for the essential powers yeah, than Madison's vision. Of those, or Hamilton's vision of those central powers, mm -hmm. which were more, more national in vision, um, and they're 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 right on with Washington's, and of course they're much broader than Roger Sherman would have wanted to have, yeah. or Luther Martin certainly would have wanted to have, or Patrick Henry um, would be even more extreme on the other end. So um, if you look at the final document, it's not too far from what we think Charles Pinckney was thinking about, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but. Of course, the problem with Pinckney's is we really don't know if it was written before or after, and it could have right. been a retrospective. Yeah. Uh, but it's very close to Washington, which, again, is no another, to me, bit of evidence yeah. to show that Washington was so central in this. If it ends up looking like what he wanted, don't you want yeah. to suspect that he had a big part in reaching those results? Well, one of the things that uh, you... You point out, I think, is in your research uh, when you're looking at Madison's notes, you, the the care the care with which Madison notes when Washington and he disagree. You know it, it, that that is clearly laid out in the Virginia when the Virginia group is voting and Washington and he are not on the same side. And and in those cases, you see that that's the, the Constitution's emerging is the one that you're describing, the one that Washington had kind of wanted all along. And we also see it there, and yeah. we also see it in when Governor Morris changes his position. Often when there's a compromise, when there's a real deadlock, 
such as over slavery or the um, or so the you think Senate Governor House. Morris is key to Washington understanding Washington. You know they went fishing every weekend. They spent so much time together during the cons during the yeah. convention, and every time uh, uh, Governor Morris often at offers the compromises where he moves back. He does speak more than any other person. He speaks. Governor Morris he speaks and Washington a lot. probably speaks less than any other person. Yes, <laughs> right? and they were very close. They literally yeah. would go fishing together really almost yeah. every weekend. They would spend a tremendous amount of time together. Washington, we know Washington admired Governor Morris as probably the brightest person there. He just was, and he loved what Governor Morris's wit, mm. unless it was directed at him. He loved it. He thought he was. He thought Governor Morris was just a stitch, and he was so funny. Um, and I think he liked Governor Morris's irreverence. Mm. Um, so he was a fun companion. But you see, Governor Morris, who was a strong, think of it, he violently opposed slavery. And he gave the most effective and beautiful anti-slave speeches there. Mm. Yet he agrees to the three-first compromise eventually, mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. he made, he said, slavery is going, he said right at the convention, slavery is going to destroy the Union. It's going to lead to the destruction of the Union. It's going to divide us. You can't treat slaves, you know, you're, the way you're treating them. He was eloquent, and yet he helped make the compromise. He was also very much a nationalist. He didn't like the states, mm -hmm. but he was key on the compromise that gave the states representation in the yeah. Senate. Uh, he was also he also wanted the direct election of presidents, and yet he came up with the electoral college compromise, which empowers the small states. But he was the advocate, so he 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 compromised. He was the he offered the key compromises. Every time he offered those compromises, he had spent the night before with Washington, the evening before. That's really really interesting circumstantial evidence as they would say I think but really uh, really telling uh, I think this is the is this the what is this the 200th anniversary of his death this 2016 I think it is I think it's some anniversary or maybe it's the 300th anniversary of his birth that wouldn't make any sense would it no because he's not older than Washington he's not like no he was younger yeah. than, he was younger than Washington so it's some it's some anniversary we, we can check that out at, at some point um, Okay, so uh, so one of the other big things in the book, of course, is this question of will he, won't he, will Washington come back uh, to be the president? Uh, talk about that election, and you know, we we think of it as a unanimous election. I, you know, I think lots of people haven't written about it because it just seems kind of like a fait accompli that Washington's going to be the president. So, what do you add? Do you think in the trying to understand that story of the eighty-eight, eighty-nine election? That, that it was a more that we see the rudimentary rudiment basis of the parties that came about, mm. we actually begin to see it, not in the election for president, mm. because both sides accepted Washington, the inevitability of Washington as president. Um, you, you look at the, um, the, 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 the anti-federalists who who were built on already established parties in New York, Pennsylvania. There were clearly established parties in New York and Pennsylvania, that one being Federalist, one adopted the Federalism, and one adopted the um, Anti-Federalism. They, the they were the foundations of the future Federalist and Jefferson Republican Party. You already had a, art clearly articulated parties in those two states that, that morphed into national. They started working together. You, you, you had that you, when you focus just on Washington, but both of those sides supported Washington as president yeah. because Washington 
First, the Constitution had passed. Second, he was generally trusted, and you therefore couldn't have knocked him out. The only two strong centers of anti-federalism, because while it was strong in Pennsylvania, it didn't have the majority. You did have the majority in Virginia, the two biggest states, two big states, I should say, New York and Virginia. But in both of those states, even if Patrick Henry had wanted to deny Jefferson, Washington and Virginia, he couldn't have. No. And you go to New York, the leader of the anti-federalist George Clinton was Washington's best friend no. and investment partner. They loved each other. They literally loved each other and they trusted each other. So he wouldn't have denied him. And so you didn't have effective opposition to Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what you do see, though, is a competitive race. You see a competitive effort to elect for the both sides to pick the VP. Mm -hmm. And there is the beginnings of the organization to elect Clinton as VP, and he would have had a better chance if Hamilton hadn't prevented New York from coming in and then voting in mm -hmm. time for the election, because mm -hmm. New York ends up not voting in that election. You also see a the beginnings of competitive races for the House and Senate. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you see the people breaking at the end well, the Federalists have won, we've got a Constitution, let's give them a chance. Mm. But you do see the buildings of the two parties already in that election. You can watch it in Virginia, you can watch it in South Carolina, you can watch it in New York, you can watch it in Pennsylvania. State after state, you see the beginnings of uh, two parties. Now, in the, then in the second election, the Anti-Federalists basically take the House of Representatives. No. They don't have the Senate yet. And then in the, when Washington's reelected, the Republicans literally take over the House of Representatives yeah. and gain effective control of the Senate. And then two years later, so you see this, but you can actually follow it, and you can actually follow it, even Washington is noting. Washington is noting already in, 18, in 1788 and 89, he sees there is a coalesced opposition. Yeah. And we've got to have an organized party and so you'll see him working with Maryland. You'll see Madison working with, going over and working with Maryland to try to get their party to win in Maryland. Mm. So you can actually see, even though it's not happening for president, it's happening for vice president, it's clearly happening for the state legislative races, then pick the senators, and definitely for Congress, you see the, the roots of the two-party system. And it makes it a very interesting election yeah. as they're writing back and forth of how to make sure we get a Federalist vice president, how we can try to get Clinton in as vice president. And, you know, Clinton runs then, he runs again. He finally doesn't make it to vice president until, what, 1804, he finally becomes vice president. Yeah. Well, yeah, after Burr has to, <laughs> has to, Burr has has to leave stage. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's great. Well, we, 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 we've talked a long time, but I'd be remiss if we don't quickly touch on a forthcoming book that you have uh, with University of Virginia Press called George Washington Nationalist. Uh, you were uh, wonderful as our Gayheart Gaines lectures uh, here uh, maybe a year, year ago, two years ago now, a year ago. And, uh, uh, and this book is, uh, is a lecture book. Talk a little bit about uh, George Washington Nationalist and what, how you'd like to see it used and, uh, and, and what it does. As you say, that book is an outgrowth of the Gaines Lecture Series, which is a, uh, a historic lecture series that you host here at Mount Vernon, where you bring in somebody to give three lectures. There is a history of the of lecture series. In fact, I've given lecture series <laughs> before, which have been published <laughs> as a book. There are other lecture series, and you had the great vision 
of turning this historic lecture series into having a regular book and working with University of Virginia Press, which is probably the most respected publisher of Washington-related materials yeah. um, in the country. And so it, the three lectures really aren't enough for a whole book, but I'd given a couple other lectures, one up at um, uh, Newburgh, where the, in, yeah. in the, in the, uh, in the um, temple there, where Washington gave his famous temple of virtue. speech, yeah, it's it's very French. Have yeah. a temple of virtue. Temple of virtue. Yeah, revolution. And I'd also given another <laughs> uh, uh, another talk. I think the other was at Morristown. I think the other was at Morristown, and was able to add those two um, to the overall, and then do quite a bit of smoothing out yeah. to make it into more like a book than reading a collection of lectures. So yeah. it's more like a book, and what I s view it as, there's material in there that didn't make the Return of George Washington book. There's also material from the Return of George Washington book, and there's added material from the lectures. And the thought is, I'm an old history teacher, and today it's tough in um, if you're teaching a survey class or if you're teaching even just a class in Revolutionary Era, if you're teaching an undergraduate history class, it's tough to assign a lot of full monographs. Yes. And certainly Return of George Washington would cover too short a period and it would be too long a book mm -hmm. to logically fit into a course. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you think of the books that do fit into a course like that, sort of an abridged version of Frederick Douglass's Life of the American Slave or Edmund Morgan's great book um, on, the, on John Winthrop, The Puritan's Dilemma, shorter books that are thematic that can be used to tell a broader story. This lecture series book, which of course the lectures were designed to a broader audience than yeah. my Return of George Washington book, which is more of an academic monograph. This one has a lot of, of, of uh, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of substance, but it's also got that thematic element that I'm hoping it can be used um, both for people who want to get an introduction to Washington and his 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 significance. Also, an introduction to this this Confederation period and the founding of our new our new country, the Constitution, mm -hmm. but also one that could actually work in a classroom that would be short enough that you could assign it yeah. as supplementary reading along with a textbook. You didn't have to go in the it's not so long and is a is a material you can you can jump into. So yeah. it's a topic, it's a theme and a thesis. I <coughs> excuse me a theme and a thesis I care about, taught, presented in a direct and straightforward way uh, without it being hidden in too much of the academic um, jargon that yeah. you get in a more academic book. Well, the, you're being very humble in terms of your writing ability. Everybody who reads your work is astonished with the beautiful prose, and, and uh, that's the thing you have closest in common with a journalist is the the reason journalists are so successful at writing history is they know how to write, and uh, you also know how to write and write well. I think. Well, they also know how to tell a story. Yeah, and, and you do too. Communicate. I mean, you story. do too. You you're incredibly able at that, and and I look forward to that book coming out. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us here, and uh, and and soon we'll have you back for something else at Mount Vernon. Well, it's a delight. You have created. You working with the other people here have created a, a real gem. There is nothing quite like, we've talked about presidential libraries, 
there's nothing quite like this presidential library and there's nothing quite like this presidential home. And I, I, I thank you and this institution and, the, and the, the association that operates this for the opportunity to be part of this place. Well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.